Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, Implications and Impact on Reproductive Rights, features Professors Elizabeth Bentley, June Carbone, Jill Hasday, and Charlotte Garden, discussing the Dobbs case in the wake of recently leaked draft opinion and share their insight on the potential outcomes and implications on reproductive rights and privacy rights in the U.S. This discussion was recorded on May 25th, 2022. A recording of the panel discussion is available on YouTube. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law Podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or via your preferred podcast application for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Bill McGovern, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and the Great Plant Moody, Moody and Bennett Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota Law School. Greetings to all of our Minnesota Law and University of Minnesota alumni, to students, faculty, staff, and friends joining us today to learn more about this extremely important and timely issue. Uh, so I'm pleased to welcome all of you to this program, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, Implications and Impact on Reproductive Rights. Today's conversation addresses the potential outcomes and implications of the Dobbs case on reproductive rights and privacy rights in the US, both from the recently leaked draft opinion in the case from the US Supreme Court, which would overrule Roe versus Wade, and in anticipation of the upcoming decision being released uh, sometime in the next uh, few weeks. Um, so as Minnesota's flagship law school, we have a responsibility to convene experts on the issues, to educate, and to join the national conversation taking place as policymakers and legal experts, health experts, legislators, and really all Americans navigate Dobbs and the prospect that Roe versus Wade may be overturned. So to discuss this topic, we've gathered four expert members of our own Minnesota law faculty. And I'll take a moment to introduce each of these distinguished panelists. So first, please welcome Professor Jill Hasday, Distinguished McKnight University Professor and Centennial Professor of in Law at Minnesota Law. She teaches and writes about anti-discrimination law, constitutional law, family law, and legal history. And she recently published an opinion piece in the Washington Post about the Dobbs draft, which I'm sure we'll discuss today. Her most recent book, Intimate Lies and the Law, won the Scribes Book Award for the best work of legal scholarship published during the previous year, among many other awards and accolades. Professor Hasday is also the editor-in-chief of Constitutional Commentary. Welcome, Jill. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thanks for having me. Next, we have Professor Elizabeth Bentley, visiting assistant professor of law at Minnesota Law. Um, professor Bentley joined the law school this summer and will teach constitutional law and our new appellate advocacy clinic. She's a former adjunct faculty member at the law school, uh, an associate at Jones Day, special counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee, and especially relevant for our discussion here, she clerked for Associate Justice Sonia Sotomayor on the US Supreme Court. So welcome Betts to both the panel and the law school. So Another newcomer to our faculty is here with us as well, Professor Charlotte Garden, 
who is currently co-associate dean for research and faculty development and professor of law at Seattle University School of Law. Uh, professor Garden's scholarship focuses on the intersection of work, labor, technology, and the constitution. She will start with us here in Minnesota this fall where she'll teach, she'll teach constitutional law, first amendment, and labor and employment courses. At Seattle, she has also taught in the civil rights amicus clinic and is the litigation director at the school's Korematsu Center for Law and Equality. Welcome, Charlotte. We're thrilled to have you here today, and we're looking forward to you joining us in just a few months. Thanks. I'm looking forward to that, too. And finally, we're joined by Professor June Carbone, uh, Rabina Chair in Law, Science, and Technology at Minnesota Law. She is an expert in family law, assisted reproduction, property law, and medicine and bioethics. And she writes on law and the family, marriage, divorce, and domestic obligations. At the Association of American Law Schools, she's a founding member of the BioLaw section, and she's a former liaison to the Joint Editorial Board of the National Conference of Commissioners of Uniform State Laws. And welcome to you, June. Thank you for joining us today. As a reminder to everyone who's watching, today's webinar is being recorded and the link to the recording will be shared via email following the event. We also have live captioning, auto captioning available and it's enabled. So if you'd like to have that, you can uh, use that Zoom feature at the bottom of your screen. We will reserve time at the end of our hour together to address questions submitted through the Q&A feature also found at the bottom of your Zoom screen. But to begin now, please join me in welcoming Professors Hasday, Bentley, Garden, and Carbon. So Jill, we're gonna start with you because we wanna begin thinking about the, um, where the law stands now. And you're, you're the historian among us. Um, what is the law of abortion rights now at today as before there is a decision in this Dobbs case? Okay, so I'm gonna start by providing a little background on the legal regulation of abortion as it exists before the opinion that the court is about to issue. First thing to know is that the common law that regulates the United States in its first decades and beyond doesn't regulate abortion before quickening. Quickening is the moment when a pregnant woman first detects fetal movement, which can happen as late as 25 weeks into a pregnancy. Uh, so initially in the United States, abortion before quickening, which is about 25 weeks, is not criminalized or even regulated. The first wave of anti-abortion legislation that reaches early pregnancy doesn't happen until the second half of the 19th century. It's a complicated story about why, but the Key thing to know is that the anti-abortion movement of the late 19th century is led by the American Medical Association and especially male obstetricians that are eager to drive female midwives out of the childbirth business. And their key strategy for doing so, even though midwives have, for instance, better success, this is before doctors fully understand germ theory, among other things, their key strategy for driving out the midwives is to associate midwives with abortion and to castigate abortion. Um, eventually, these anti-abortion uh, laws, these abortion bans, including an early pregnancy, become very widespread and cause untold suffering and death. I mean, women, are, women die um, from self-abortion, from abortions from not licensed practitioners, uh, et cetera. 
The Supreme Court first places constitutional limits on a state's ability to restrict abortion in a 1973 case called Roe v. Wade, one of the few Supreme Court cases that the ordinary American may have heard of. A few things to note about Roe. First, when Roe was decided in 1973, the Supreme Court's constitutional law governing sex discrimination is only just beginning to get off the ground. It's only two years since the court found the first example of what it considered unconstitutional sex discrimination. There's just very few equality cases focusing on discrimination against women to look at. So from that perspective, it's not surprising that Roe doesn't think about abortion in terms of sex discrimination or sex equality. Instead, the court builds on a series of due process cases, which hold that the liberty that the due process clause guarantees to everyone include a constitutionally protected right to privacy. So this idea of a constitutional right to privacy already existed before Roe. And what Roe says is this constitutional right to privacy includes some right to access abortion. Um, Roe, in fact, lays out an entire sort of scheme of permissible abortion regulation along a trimester framework. It says in the third trimester of pregnancy, states can prohibit abortion. Why? Because the third trimester, the start of the third trimester marks the moment when the fetus is viable. Viability just means that it's medically possible that a child born at that moment could survive. Not that it's likely, um, but that it's medically possible. There has been uh, a fetus born, you know, a fetus, um, a, a baby born at that level of fetal gestation that survived. So Roe says after the third trimester, states can prohibit abortion. But in the first trimester, states can't um, prevent women from seeking abortions. And in the second trimester, states can regulate abortion, but in the interest of maternal life and health. So Roe sets out this trimester scheme to balance what they see as this constitutional right that women have to privacy, which includes a right to access abortion, with the state's interest in potential life, which Roe says becomes compelling at this moment of viability. When I first read Roe, having heard about it you know, for many years, but when I first finally read it in law school, I'll say two things stuck out for me. One, Roe says almost nothing about women. Roe never tells us why a woman might want to have an abortion. There's just, it's just for an opinion that's about abortion, women almost never appear. Instead, it's very much in a medical framework. So for instance, when Roe talks about this right to privacy that extends to a right to choose abortion, much of it is actually framed in terms of the doctor's privacy, as if the problem is the state is interfering with the autonomy of doctors who thinks abortion is the appropriate um, treatment. And here's the state saying no. Uh, it may not surprise you um, from this perspective to learn that what was Blackman's job before for, he was on the Supreme Court, before that he was on the Eighth Circuit, what was he before then? He was the general counsel of the Mayo Clinic. And in fact, he writes the Roe opinion sitting in the library of the Mayo Clinic and Roe obsessively cites these medical texts. It's all about what the medical profession has thought about abortion, which from a certain perspective, shouldn't actually be the central question, but it is. And um, he thinks it matters quite a bit in Roe that by the time Roe comes out, the AMA is no longer against abortion as it was in the late 19th century. Although even as of late as 1973, the AMA opposes mere acquiescence to the patient's demand, i.e. giving a woman abortion because she wants one, because simply because she wants one. Okay. So the first thing that really strikes out for me about Roe is 
there's no feminist sensibility in it. It's not really about women. It's, it's actually about doctors, if anything, more than it's about women. The second thing that really stands out about Roe is there's, it's a seven, two decisions. So there's seven in the majority, two in the dissent. No one has a sense that Roe is going to become Roe. It's going to become famous. It's going to be the name that'll be in the New York Times crossword puzzle that everyone knows. Even the dissent isn't, doesn't have the sense this is going to be a, uh, just a pip, such a pivotal case. Um, I'll say that in the decades after Roe, a very common academic theory was that Roe itself is what triggered the anti-abortion movement. And many academics argued that if only the court had gone slower in Roe and maybe hadn't had such a sweeping opinion, the anti-abortion movement wouldn't have gotten off the ground in the same way and abortion wouldn't have become such a politically polarizing issue. I'll just say that more recent historical um, research, I think, has convincingly shown that that story is wildly overstated. What gets the anti-abortion movement off the ground? It's the liberalization of abortion that starts in the early 19th century. I'm sorry, that starts in the early 1960s. There's no anti-abortion movement before that because they have nothing to fight about. They have exactly what they want. Abortion is prohibited. Um, uh, and what keeps abortion at the forefront of politics? I think many historians, to me, have convincingly shown that abortion becomes a very important political issue, uniting Catholics and, eugen- and um, uh, evangelical Christians in uh, a new right Republican um, coalition. And that helps keep abortion politics uh, alive. In any event, Roe does become famous. Um, and uh, Republican presidents, including very prominently Ronald Reagan, explicitly say that they are going to appoint Supreme Court justices who will overturn Roe. That's a very explicit statement. So by the time the next huge abortion case comes along, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, most people think there's five votes to overturn Roe because there's five justices who've been appointed by presidents who said, I'm trying to appoint justices who will overturn Roe. But in fact, the Supreme Court does not overturn Roe, or at least not entirely. Instead, Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter, all all appointed by Republicans, write a long plurality opinion that stresses the importance of respecting precedent, what's called stare decisis, and not succumbing to political pressure. Basically, the undertone of this opinion is, we know we were put on to overturn Roe, and that makes us reluctant to overturn Roe because we don't want to just be like the minions of, of politics. So they have this long discussion of stare decisis. They say, we're not going to overturn the idea of some constitutional protection for abortion. That said, Casey importantly redoes the framework in Roe and sets out what becomes the constitutional law of abortion that's governed now from Casey 1992 to the present day. The Casey framework agrees with Roe that after viability, states can prohibit abortion. But Casey says, we can't tie this to the beginning of the first trimester because advances in medical technology are moving this line of viability, this moment when a fetus might be able to survive if born um, earlier. At this point, I think fetal viability is around 23, 24 weeks. So, but Casey says, once the fetus is viable, states can prohibit abortion. Before viability, states can regulate abortion as long as they don't impose an undue burden on a woman's access to abortion. Oh, undue burden by its nature is always gonna be sort of a messy standard. In Casey itself, the court holds that 24 hour waiting periods do not impose an undue burden, even though for poor women or women who are under someone's control where it's difficult to get out or um, 
women who are far away from abortion clinics, having to go back two times can be quite difficult, but the court says that's not an undue burden. On the other hand, Casey at the same time says a husband notification requirement is an undue burden. I think the idea being some husbands, if you notify them, they'll respond by you know, physically preventing you from having an abortion, maybe they'll kill you, you, know, you don't know what's gonna happen. Um, since Casey, there's been endless cases on what counts as an undue burden. The anti-abortion movement is full of policy entrepreneurs and there's just been many laws passed. Well, is this an undue burden? How about this? Can we do this? Can we do that? Um, and there's a whole jurisprudence we could get into. So for instance, I'll just say here, very interestingly, the court says it's not an undue burden for, for a state to deny indigent women access to abortion through the state-funded healthcare system that otherwise provides healthcare. Um, but one thing that has been clear since 1973 to the present day, that banning a pre-viability abortion is clearly an undue burden. Saying you absolutely cannot get an abortion when the fetus is before viability is absolutely an undue burden. That brings us to the current case. And that brings us to Professor Bentley, who I think is going to take on the duties of giving us a sense of what's in Dobbs, uh, at, least, at least as it is in a draft form that was leaked. Go ahead, Beth. Yeah, thanks so much, Professor Hasday, for that background, which is so important, I think, to understanding what this decision actually says. So on May 2nd, as everybody is well aware, Politico published a leaked draft majority opinion that was written by Justice Alito, which would overturn Roe and Casey, those two foundational cases that we just heard about. And quickly to put it in context, again, this is a draft. And it's important to note that the law that we were just hearing about is still the law today, and it will remain the law until the court eventually issues a final opinion. And it's extremely unusual for us to get a draft opinion like this early in the court's deliberative process. What typically happens is a justice will circulate an opinion like this. Now, at, at this moment, other justices are going to be writing dissents, responding to it. Likely, justices are also writing concurrences and maybe even holding out hope that they're going to be able to change someone's mind. So a decision is not final until it's final. But all that said, we have every reason to believe that this opinion, or at least some version of it, will become the law of the land in the next handful of weeks when the court issues its decisions, especially with some of the other leaks that we've been hearing from the court about how many votes um, are still you know, out there, that there are still five votes to overrule Roe and Casey. Um, so because of that, it's important to kind of dig in and try and understand what this opinion says uh, and what the implications may be. So of course, as we're all aware, the majority says Roe and Casey must be overruled. Well, what does that mean? It means that the effect of the decision would be that that decision, any kind of decisions about how to regulate or uh, abortion or access to abortion will return to each individual state to decide for themselves. So some states will you know, attempt to ban abortion nearly altogether. Um, other states will provide more robust access to abortion care procedures and reproductive, uh, reproductive care. And that's just gonna be on a state by state basis. So, um, but I'd like to dig into the opinion itself to figure out what it actually says, um, at least some kind of key points that I'd like to raise just to understand kind of what we may see moving forward. So at its core, the decision written by Justice Alito just fundamentally disagrees with Roe v. Wade on every level. It describes it as egregiously wrong. And this view that it was so terribly wrong on the day that it was decided drives the decision and its analysis. And this is important because as Professor Hasdy explained, this concept of stare decisis 
typically commands that the court follow the, the um, holdings of its earlier decisions, with, except for in certain extreme circumstances. But Justice Alito in this draft says, um, it describes that um, in his view, when interpreting the constitution, getting it quote unquote right is more important than those other factors that we consider in stare decisis, like stability in the rule of law or reliance interests, creating confidence that the court is not making decisions based on their own, that the justices aren't making decisions on their own policy or personal political views. Um, but here he's saying when it comes to the, to the constitution, it's more important we get it right. And that's what he focuses on. So he takes on Roe head on from multiple angles. And just to pause here, you know, as we heard from Professor Hasday, the court already faced this issue in Casey. It already heard arguments about historical analysis. It heard um, critiques about the, um, the, the Roe's analysis and what it relied on, all of the, um, you know, the uh, issues that we're facing and that he's kind of addressing here and taking on with Roe, the court considered those in Casey, but decided because of stare decisis as its most important factor that it was gonna uphold that central ruling. So Justice Alito in this draft effectively just casts Casey aside, says, you know what? I don't think that, that, that Casey did a, did a um, adequate stare decisis analysis. So we're gonna do a redo. And he just takes Roe head on by and by by you know undermining Roe, then much is much easier later on for the for the court to say, and therefore Casey's wrong too, right? Um, so there's no understanding really grappling with the fact that this is a starry decisis analysis on top of a starry decisis analysis, right? Um, so looking at the decision itself, um, just to kind of give a few points about what you know what the focus is on why Roe is so wrong. The draft opinion, you know, first points out that abortion's not written in the text of the Constitution. Okay, well, the court has already recognized a number of different rights that aren't written down expressly in the Constitution. So the decision then kind of turns to saying, well, it's also not implied in any right, um, any clause in the Constitution. And focusing specifically on the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which is what we've heard kind of was the, was the primary basis for the decisions in Roe and Casey. And I wanna pause here because this is really important, I think when we think about the implications of this decision beyond just what we're talking about in reproductive health care, but the test he applies for, the, for finding a right under the due process clause, and so he says that there's, the due process clause doesn't guarantee a right um, unless it, is, it must be deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Now, the focus on history and tradition does appear in some of the court's case law, and he cites a case, Washington versus Glucksburg. But what he doesn't discuss in any, any really substantive way is that this court since then, in the Obergefell case as an example, uh, which is the case that found a due process right to same-sex marriage, that the court really walked back on that focus on history and tradition and took a much broader view of the right to privacy and liberty under the due process clause. And just as one example, I mean, the, in Obergefell, the court says that history and tradition guide and discipline this inquiry, but do not set its outer boundaries. That method respects our history and learns from it without allowing the past alone to rule the present. 
So there's this idea that when you're talking about privacy and liberty, that we we are not totally bound by rooted in, in, in history for a lot of reasons. When you can think about rights that um, historically were not uh, considered or, or understood um, to 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 fall under the Constitution, but over time have been recognized by the Supreme Court. Um, the the Obergefell even discusses Glucksburg and kind of distinguishes it and sets it aside. Alito Justice Alito doesn't get into that at all, and instead just doubles down on this Glucksburg history and tradition framework. So he spends a huge portion of his opinion, nearly 20 pages, digging into his, what his view of the historical analysis, digging into um, in back in the history of England and the early stages of the United States. And as Professor Hasday explained, that history, since the decisions come out, has really been called into question about a lot of his historical analysis. And there's reason to think that um, it's not as he lays it out. And even then, the sources he relies on are extremely, um, in a number of cases, extremely questionable and concerning. Um, and hopefully we'll have some time to get more into that. But so he, he makes this point, it's not rooted in history and tradition in the United States. It's also not necessary for this concept of ordered liberty, which is, you know, kind of a difficult concept to wrap your head around. But I, what I want to kind of point out there is he basically says at one point that, you know, modern developments have made it unnecessary to, to have the right to an abortion um, if, under the Constitution. I mean, he even at one point cites the Affordable Care Act as providing um, insurance payments to women who continue their pregnancies and give childbirth, um, which of course you can kind of hear the cynicism in that knowing how Justice Alito feels about the lawfulness of the Affordable Care Act. But hey, if it's on the books, great. Now it supports the fact that we don't need the right to abortion anymore. Um, he also references things like safe haven laws where, you know, women, you can simply drop your baby off at a police station or a fire uh, station without any repercussions. And therefore, you know, you don't have to worry about raising the child. No problem. You don't need to have that right in the first place. And what's what's really concerning here to me, and this goes back to Professor Hasday's point, I'll leave I'll leave you with this and turn it over to, to my colleagues here. But um, is this idea of like, where is the woman in this analysis and thinking about what is the effect of the, um, the taking away the right to abortion on women in our society. And what Justice Alito talking later in kind of his stare decisis analysis about reliance interests says that, you know, this idea of like women have been relying on the, on the ability to have this right or to be able to, um, to uh, make these reproductive healthcare decisions kind of as a part of their role in society, he basically says that, you know, that's an empirical question that he says is hard for anyone and particularly a court to assess. So we're just not gonna consider it. And that's that. That is, that is the extent to which that he talks about, like that is just too hard for this court to understand. And so we're not gonna consider the, the effect of women on society having relied on this for the past 50 years. So anyway, there's so much more to say, but I'll leave it at that. I'm interested to hear you know, reactions of the decision um, from the rest of you. Great, and uh, everyone's gonna have things to, to chime in on. One thing I wanna make sure we talk about and maybe sure that you can address this is uh, uh, Professor Bentley referred in passing to the fact that this whole framework um, that comes from Griswold and Roe and other cases like that uh, affects a lot of things beyond abortion rights. So maybe you can also make sure, you know, uh, Professor Bentley mentioned Obergefell same-sex marriage case. If this draft becomes law, what 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 is the theme for other cases beyond the realm of abortion? 
Sure, yeah. So um, to start with a little bit of background and then talk about what I think um, this case means for other rights. Um, let me sort of just let me start by saying there's a group of cases that are um, broadly grouped under this under a doctrine called substantive due process. And these cases protect fundamental rights um, around marriage, having and raising children, making medical decisions, sexual privacy. Um, so kind of a whole group of decisions around the idea of kind of privacy and family life, if you like. Um, one big fight that's been going on since, you know, at least the 80s, um, maybe a little earlier, um, be in the court is how to decide if something counts as a fundamental right or not. Um, and there have been kind of two general approaches. Um, one I would characterize as being kind of like analogic or precedential, um, where the court relies on past case law and it proceeds incrementally um, to define, you know, a set of fundamental rights that it sees as being at the core of individual liberty. Um, and that's the approach that the court has mostly taken in the foundational cases in this area, um, including, um, but not limited to Roe. And then the other approach um, Professor Bentley mentioned is um, one, that's sometimes, one that's often attributed to Glucksburg v. Washington, which is a 1997 case about a Washington law that prohibited assisted suicide. So that approach uh, says that courts should focus on determining whether the potential fundamental right um, is objectively deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, and it also emphasizes what it calls careful description. Um, and careful description refers to the idea that it's not enough to, for example, point to um, a history of protecting, uh, you know, a history of legal protections for people making their own medical choices. If there is also a legal history that is more specific to the question at issue in the case, right? So like in Glucksburg, um, whether there's a specific history of legal regulation of assisted suicide. So the so, so where the rubber meets the road, right, is the idea that there are these this group of cases that have been decided in a fashion that the that the Dobbs opinion rejects. Right. So, for example, um, cases like um, Griswold v. Connecticut and Eisenstadt v. Baird, which have to do with the right to access and use contraceptives, um, didn't use the Glucksburg approach. Right. Obergefell v. Hodges, right, which Professor Bentley uh, mentioned, doesn't really use the Glucksburg approach. Um, in fact, the dissenters in Obergefell um, criticized the majority for not using the Glucksburg approach. Um, and in a, uh, in a 1989 case called um, Michael H. V. Gerald D., um, there's this discussion sort of between Justice Scalia and Justice Brennan, where Justice Brennan, where, where Justice Scalia is um, articulating the approach that the court ultimately uses in Glucksburg. And um, Justice Brennan says, um, well, you know, if this is the approach, then an awful lot of our previous cases wouldn't have come out the way um, that they did. Right. So that's why people are nervous, right, that this decision creates the foundation for future decisions reversing other substantive due process decisions. Right. So, so, so saying that, you know, rights that have previously been deemed fundamental, we don't think they're fundamental anymore. Um, on the other hand, right, in a few places in the decision, Alito, Justice Alito says that Dobbs shouldn't have that effect. So, for example, he writes that 
Um, Rose defenders characterize the abortion right as similar to the rights recognized in past decisions involving matters such as intimate sexual relations, contraception, and marriage. But abortion is fundamentally different because it dest destroys what those decisions call fetal life and what the law now before us, or the, the Louisiana law, describes as un an, an unborn human being. Um, I will say I, I don't feel tremendously assured by that passage um, and similar ones in the decision. Um, you know, one reason I don't feel particularly reassured by it is that um, it, it claims to be bound by what people say is fetal life. Um, and, and people say a lot of things, right? So for example, people say that certain forms of birth control, including IUDs and the morning after pill are also abortifacients, right? Though scientists disagree. Um, so, you know, I don't, you know, I obviously don't know what will happen in the future, but I find it you know, fairly easy to imagine, right? A court relying on Dobbs to uphold a ban on using at least those forms of contraceptives. Um, so I'd be interested to hear what, what others think about that. Others want to jump in on that? I could, point? I'll, two, two points. Um, the other thing, so, okay, so one dispute, I think actually in the due process clause, people always, the justice always look back to history, but it's what lens do they use? Do they ask, how would you have fared in 1870? Would you have won? Which is basically the question Alito's asking. Or do they ask, like the court didn't know Broderfeld, the same-sex marriage case, is marriage an important right? You know, theme, they look back thematically. Does this implicate sort of themes that have been important in American culture? Um, even though, one point I just want to stress is that even if you agree, as I don't with Alita, that you should ask, like, how is the abortion right fared specifically? Abortion isn't a crime before quickening a common law. So there's a way you can say that actually what Casey works out is almost exactly the common law tradition of being able to criminalize abortion after quickening and not before. It's amazingly historically rooted, except for the blip of late 19th century to sort of mid 20th century. The other point I'll just make is, even if there had been this tradition of criminalizing early abortion, who created that tradition? It wasn't women. One thing that's so striking about this history is Alito tells this history as if these are all sources that we should look at and carry forward into time. Maybe Saturday Night Live did it best with their intro where they had everyone citing this 13th century treatise and all the other things it said. Um, my op-ed was about, he cites a lot of times Matthew Hale, who was in the 1600s, was a legal uh, judge who had a lot of opinions I think Alito wouldn't be comfortable with, among other things. Matthew Hale believed in witches and sentenced witches to death. Should we use him as a guide going forward? He also thought marital rape wasn't a crime. A husband had a legal right to, to uh, rape his wife, that women who report they've been raped shouldn't be believed. But one thing I just find so interesting about Alito is he thinks he can cite all these sources with no caveats for the idea that women weren't involved in this constitutional decision-making. And I in some ways, to me, Alito shows the limits of this approach, maybe because it's such a kind of absolute opinion, crisper than we've seen before. And I'm hoping the dissent really gets into that. What does it mean to rely on a constitutional understanding from which women are explicitly excluded? Why would we possibly carry that forward in time? Beth or June, do you want to say anything more right, right now? Another another quick point. Um, I agree with everything that that Professor Hasdeo was just saying, and I appreciate that um, 
perspective. I also just looking back kind of what to, to what Professor Garden was talking about, about how the opinion kind of expressly distinguishes those other those other um, types of rights. And, you know, it basically says that this decision, you know, right now, it doesn't affect those. And there's no reason to say that this effectively we're not we're not overturning all those cases right now. That's not what's before us. We're only dealing with this case that involves fetal life. But they, the opinion doesn't explain kind of how the test changes when fetal life is not involved, right? Or why it should be different. And what, what if, I mean, you know, I can understand the idea, you know, that, that that's an important issue. I'm not trying to minimize um, that, the, you know, the, the view that many people carry about, about that issue. But why, as a legal, like, principled matter, does that make the analysis different? And we look at history differently in this context, but not in those. And there's no explanation for that. So, you know, and, and basically there's there's every opportunity now for folks in all, all around the country in different states to kind of bring up cases under, whether it's under same-sex marriage or the contraception issues. And, you know, maybe the justices right now aren't saying we're gonna overrule it, but that doesn't mean that a state legislature might not try something different or that a clerk of court who's issuing a marriage certificate isn't going to do something differently. And those cases are going to come up and then the court's going to be asked, well, why is this different? You've just said that in order for a right to be established under the due process clause, it has to be rooted in history and tradition. Um, and then it'll force them to either reaffirm the other decisions um, that are on still on the books or to kind of apply this new reasoning. So that, you know, when when you when, when I share that kind of unease that this isn't by just saying, oh, those are different. Um, trying to explain why they're different is really difficult when you read the words on the page. Yeah, just to that point, there's this real sort of, you know, at times the opinion says, well, because Roe and Casey said, Roe and Casey said potential life is important. Um, and so we're relying on that and other times in the opinion where they say, well, we have to go back to first principles and let's look at, you know, sources from the 13th century and that's how we answer this question, right? It's not particularly consistent um, mm -hmm. when it comes to how it uses precedent. Mm -hmm. So one other component of the issue that I wanna make sure we, we get out um, uh, as we round the half hour mark, um, I'm gonna to turn to you, June, is let's assume that this draft opinion or something like it is what the Supreme Court issues as its opinion in a few weeks. What does that mean for uh, access to abortion around the country. Uh, Professor Bentley said it goes back to the states. So, and then what? Yes, and I, I want to tie in both the recent discussion and root it in some of Professor Hasday's original remarks. So if you go back to the time in which Roe was decided, it was not a partisan issue. In fact, in certain periods in the 70s, Republicans were somewhat more pro-choice than Democrats. And the Southern Baptist Convention in 1972 had a moderately pro-choice platform in its annual convention. And if you ask the question why and what changed, in the 70s, abortion was viewed as a Catholic issue. And Protestant evangelicals, Southern Baptists, a variety of other groups uh, were more anti-Catholic than they were anti-abortion. That changed in the 80s. And it, it changed in two steps that I think have to be separated. The first is what you see as a change in American religion, where the critical divide in American religion becomes between fundamentalists and others, 
with mainstream Protestant churches becoming more secular, uh, you know, their, their congregations lose members as the members become more secular. But fundamentalist churches gain adherence. And over the course of the 90s, you see a movement of people who identify as anti-abortion for religious reasons become more likely to be Republicans. But after 2000, that shifts. Republicans embrace the anti-abortion move as an element of identity. And people who identify as conservative Republicans become more extremely anti-abortion, even if they're not religious, or if they attend a church that is not particularly anti-abortion. And that emergence of abortion as a marker of identity in a party that is pushing toward purity, more extreme views, makes the meaning of this decision fundamentally different than what might have happened had Roe never been decided in the 70s. And I think it's important to recognize this. This is not simply going back in time. It is taking place in a much more polarized atmosphere. And I therefore predict that the consequences of Roe will be two things. The equivalent of a legal civil war, which is going to be played out in the courts with a great deal of intensity and damage to the rule of law itself, and a remaking of women's relationship to their doctors, not just on abortion, but with respect to contraception. Some states may outlaw the IUD or the morning after pill, which many states make hard to get already, uh, the morning after pill in particular. Uh, and it will affect IVF. But most fundamentally, it's going to affect handling of miscarriages. And women are going to die as a result. So you have already Catholic hospitals in Detroit have been, that have uh, a position. Uh, they will do nothing that endangers the life of the fetus until a heartbeat is not detected. You've had a series of women show up at these hospitals with uh, things gone wrong in their pregnancy. Uh, the women are sent home, given pills, you know, aspirin, saying, uh, keep an eye on things, let us know if it gets worse. They are not told that their fetus is not viable. That continuing the pregnancy will threaten their lives. They are treated by these hospitals only at the point where the woman's life is threatened and the fetal heartbeat can't be detected. This is a real threat to women. And the other thing that will happen following on the first is that you're going to see pro-choice states make abortion more freely available for out-of-state residents, something that is not a big deal right now. And you're going to see this cross-border movement and you're gonna see <laughs> the abortion police try to stop it. Uh, you're gonna see things like, um, out-of-state residents come and take down the license plates at abortion clinics. You're going to see requests for information on who is accessing abortion. You're going to see women who have miscarriages, genuine miscarriages, be arrested for engaging in abortion. You're going to see college roommates who drive their roommate across state lines arrested. All those things are going to take place. Now, if we lived in a rule of law society in which precedent mattered, well, Roe would be overturned, there are precedents protecting a right of interstate commerce, a right to travel to access different services that limit the territorial reach of state jurisdiction. 
But you have a court that has very little respect for precedent. And I say that not just on the basis of Roe, but other cases. And these precedents are uh, on interstate travel are less well-established than Roe itself. So what you're likely to see is, as I said, <laughs> illegal civil war of pro-choice states trying to protect uh, the availability of abortion in those states to immunize medical professionals who make abortion available. Uh, and then a counter move, uh, Missouri has already made it illegal to assist Missouri residents in, in resident in obtaining an out-of-state abortion. Mm -hmm. And that's gonna affect right to privacy, access to health records. Mm -hmm. uh, it may involve, uh, there are apparently ads out already about uh, state police uh, uh, interrogating pregnant women who attempt to cross state lines. Uh, the kind of vigilante laws you have in Texas authorizing private enforcement uh, may allow people who are residents of one state to go into another state with an effort to detect residents from that state obtaining abortion services. And again, a set of consequences if you define um, abortion as starting from the moment of conception forward. That certainly affects IVF. When Louisiana, uh, ad Louisiana adopted a statute that treats fetuses as juridical persons, but what most people don't realize about that statute is it also has a provision that Im immunizes IF IVF doctors from liability uh, from who are engaged in providing fertility services. The reason that law passed back in the early days of IVF is that IVF doctors in Louisiana were terrified <laughs> that prosecutors in the state, unknown to play to the uh, back benches, um, to extremists uh, who are very pro-life in Louisiana, that these prosecutors would arrest them for performing conventional IVF services in which you do not implant all of the embryos and therefore rescue a child who might otherwise die. Immunizing the doctors was critical to the development of IVF, which uh, Louisiana has a very sophisticated IVF program at LSU mm -hmm. uh, and in New Orleans. So services like IVF, which are not particularly controversial, Mississippi voted down a personhood amendment because the fear was that would, it would interfere with IVF. Well, extremist state legislatures like those in Oklahoma who just banned anything, you know, treated life as starting from the moment of conception forward and banning anything that could be considered abortion. Um, doctors in that state ought to be incredibly worried about treating a woman whose fetus is not viable, about what to do with frozen embryos, about whether or not something that might cause an abortion, like the morning after pill, can be administered without endangering the doctor's access. Mm -hmm. And the final point that's going to happen is um, abortion pills you know, they can get online or, or um, are most safely administered under the care of a doctor, even though they're relatively easy to take and the process is not that difficult. But if you have women who do things like cross state lines, obtain abortion pills in another state and then bring them home, uh, and then want to have a doctor advise them over Zoom the way we're doing today, is the doctor liable for prosecution in the state in which the woman is located? Is the woman liable? Can the state start monitoring Zoom calls? Uh, is somebody keeping tabs on what we're saying today? Hmm. Um, those kinds of things are going to increase, and so is the reaction to them. 
Um, and I think when you have states engaged, as Oklahoma's governor proudly announced, we want to be the most pro-life state in the country, a competition in purity, you are also empowering the abortion police mm -hmm. to inquire into women's miscarriages, the health care they receive from their doctors. And that will drive some things underground, that if you're obtaining abortion pills on the black market, take something that could be routine and safe and make it dangerous. I do predict women will die as a result of the failure to provide health care in the context of wanted pregnancies. And who knows what will take place in dark shadows as we drive abortion pills and other procedures underground. Well, that's a sobering analysis. <laughs> I, I, I want to remind our uh, viewers that the Q&A is open. There are a few questions and one of them is direct on this point. So maybe I'll just articulated and then folks can respond to both Professor Carbone and this question. Um, so basically once it's in the States, the, the sort of legal civil war that Professor Carbone referred to, and this question says, Texas has passed legislation that attempts to extend the long arm of its law to on abortion beyond its borders, as other states have, uh, whereas Connecticut has legislation aimed at protecting its citizens from similar attempts. So um, the question says, are comparisons to the Fugitive Slave Act appropriate here, or are other historical comparisons appropriate in terms of the kind of state versus state conflict that Professor Carbone is, um, is anticipating? Yes, and can I give one example of that? There you go. There's a whole period from roughly the 1880s yeah, through the 1940s, in which you could be married in one state and divorced in another state, and the states are refusing to recognize the, the legitimacy of this. And a series of Supreme Court decisions, in, in mostly in the 1940s, uh, that tried to reconcile these decisions. But basically, you had prosecutors in Tennessee arresting people for bigamy who had gotten divorces in Nevada. And the Supreme Court ultimately decided we're going to tamp all this down and develop a set of rules to manage it so that the rule of law prevails. Now, this, the U.S. Supreme Court could do this here, um, tamping down these disputes. Instead, my prediction is they will ramp them up, overturning established precedents on the right to travel. Because once you treat abortion as murder, the extraterritorial reach of the state becomes more justifiable. Oh, just two things also. One thing I think it's important to note is that Alito is really saying abortion is left to legislators, which also could include Congress. So the federal mm -hmm. government, if it wanted to, could preempt counteracting state laws. I don't think there's a Commerce Clause problem with the state regulating abortion, with the federal government regulating abortion. We can get into that if you want to do Cumla 1. Mm -hmm. But I think the federal government could. So it's, it's not only a failure of the Supreme Court, although I don't want to minimize it, it's also a failure of Congress to step in and deal with this. The other thing I would say is that if you look internationally, rates of abortion are amazingly consistent across countries, regardless of the regime. So the idea that this is going to, it doesn't reduce abortions, it just changes how those abortions take place and the consequences of it. And that, I mean, about one in four pregnancies ends in abortion right now. So it's just an enormous number of women are getting abortions. I think one thing the anti-abortion movement has succeeded in doing is that most people who get abortions don't talk about it. So it's not visible to people, but there's just an enormous number of women who at some point in their life want to end a pregnancy and that demand has to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. that's, what, well, that, that's what's driving it. 
One of our viewers asked the question about congressional action. Do others agree with Professor Hasday's assessment that that would be possible, even if it's not politically likely right at the moment? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with her. Uh, I agree with that analysis. Um, you know, I think the the is it practically achievable question is worth thinking about a little more, right? Um, you know, there's this sort of sort of like rose colored glasses view of um, both pregnancy and parenting and kind of law and public institutions that I think we see in the Dobbs draft, right? At one point, Justice Alito says, you know, if women don't like losing reproductive autonomy, then they can just vote um, without, you know, acknowledging um, gerrymandering or voter suppression, right? Or of course, also the court's role in kind of allowing those anti-democratic um, practices to proliferate, right? And I could go on about my, you know, the the court's um, rose-colored glasses take on um, unpaid family leave um, and the availability and usefulness of that, of the effectiveness of the Pregnancy Discrim uh, Discrimination Act at preventing people who are pregnant from losing their jobs or losing out on promotion opportunities. Um, and also the you know, inattentiveness to the experience of pregnancy itself, right? Like people have been talking about, right? The, you know, a major medical event that can be um, disabling or fatal. Um, and that can also be disproportionately so, um, especially for black and indigenous people who are pregnant. Um, so I've, <laughs> I've gotten a little bit beyond the question, um, but just wanted to note, especially that like, the, the challenges to a democratic response. Sure. Just to jump in really quickly as well on that point is that, uh, or about this question about whether Congress could pass a law. I think, you know, theoretically getting past all of the political issues that would, would prevent that from happening probably tomorrow. Um, you know, there's, there's also, you have to keep your eye on what was happening kind of what in the pro-life movement beyond this, now that Roe has been overturned. And there's certainly aspects of that movement pushing for um, a constitutional um, right to personhood, fetal personhood or right to life. And if, to the extent that the Supreme Court ever gets there and establishes a right to life at time of at whatever point, whether it's fertilization or otherwise, that would then have significant serious consequences on whether or not Congress could pass a law that would effectively um, com conflict with the constitutional right of of a fetus or an embryo, right? Yeah, I agree. This is not the end. The end for the anti-abortion movement is fetal personhood, meaning even if a state wants to allow abortion, it can't. And that may seem, I'm not saying that happens tomorrow, but it didn't seem like Roe is going to be overturned either, right? That's their next big goal is fetal personhood. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's today or tomorrow, but that's, they're not satisfied. That's their next, that's their next milestone. So someone building, yeah, and oh, go ahead, June. Okay. I want, I want to respond on the Commerce Clause. I think Professor Hasse is right. If you take existing law and say, could Congress pass a law addressing uh, abortion on a national basis, it would uh, pass Commerce Clause mustard. But I think that's like saying, yes, an abortion is illegal today under the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> is legal today, not illegal, legal today. I don't think it means a thing. I think if you read Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in the ACA, in which he declared the ACA unconstitutional on Commerce Clause grounds, but upheld it on the taxing power of the US Constitution, that's an incredibly pernicious decision in that it is a fairly radical restriction of Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. And Frankly, I think the ACA has a stronger claim to being to regulating interstate commerce than a guarantee of a national guarantee of access to abortion. 
On the other hand, I think if Congress took a series of measures dealing with the specific commerce aspects of abortion, that would be on stronger grounds. But I would not assume that this court would uphold a congressional act guaranteeing right to abortion nationally. I agree with that. I agree with that. Well, so we have about five, <laughs> we have about five minutes left, and um, I think I'm going to uh, ask each of you to to address anything else really important that you think has been left out. We do have questions remaining on the table, but I do want to get opportunity for you to sort of jump in with anything else that you think uh, is important to uh, include in this discussion. I'll just reiterate what I think June's comments made very clear, which is I think it's comforting to believe that overturning Roe is mainly a problem for poor women who can't travel across state lines or women who are in abusive relationships who can't get away. But overturning Roe is a problem for everyone. Doesn't matter how rich you are, it can still interfere with your life. Those people getting IVF, they're not poor. That's $10,000 a pop, but it can still interfere with your life. So it's everyone. I think that's something that maybe people haven't quite gotten to the idea of going to the doctor, even when you're a very privileged person and having a hostile relationship with that doctor, I think will be a new experience for many people who thought that the, these anti-abortion laws were a good idea. Others? I'd like to just jump in a topic that we haven't gotten into um, very much, I think intentionally in this webinar, but just wanted to kind of um, highlight for a second is the the idea of this the leak itself and that this happened at the court. And um, I'm much more interested in the substance of what the decision says than I am about who did it and kind of the gossip behind it. But I do think the fact that a leak like this happened, regardless of who it was or how it came to be, is seriously, um, is, is a very serious issue for the legitimacy of the court and one that the court is going to be feeling the fallout from for years to come, not just on this issue, but a number of other um, kind of the, the court's recent decision-making and its lack of respect for precedent and stare decisis. Um, and especially on a, an issue like this that is so important and heated in the public, um, it's, you know, it's imperative that the court maintain its legitimacy so that the, the um, public can accept its decisions. And I have a lot of serious concern about what this means for the court moving forward and about the public's ability to take um, its decisions seriously. And, and I think that beyond just the conversations we've been talking about, it has implications for many areas of law um, and separation of powers issues that are kind of fundamental that we always take for granted about the court, um, that a lot of that may end up being called into question. So I just wanted to kind of flag that as an issue, um, even though we weren't able to kind of dig in today. Charlotte or June, other closing thoughts? I mean, I guess on um, Professor Bentley's point, I mean, just the, like this court is, um, like this decision is radical about abortion and we should also expect radical decisions on many other topics, right? So, um, you know, this is a court that I, I think we're likely to see overturn a fair amount of other, other precedent, right? That people sort of rely on and accept. Um, and that, you know, the next several months and then, you know, the next the coming years, right? We're going to see a lot of changes to, you know, gun rights to the way the administrative, the way administrative agencies can function, right? To the, um, any number of other you know, incredibly important issues, right? Affirmative action next year. So, uh, you know, I think we'll be, maybe not us, in part, us exactly us, but, uh, you know, 
we'll have a lot, you know, for better or worse, right? So we'll have a lot more of these panels to, you know, do in the coming months and years. Yeah, and I want to say that what's different about this opinion is what the court has done really very consistently since Casey is undermine access to abortion that disproportionately affects poor women. This opinion is going to affect much more powerful women in a direct way. And the issue of rape and incest is, I think, something that every politician should be asked. Let me explain what is happening to the issue of rape right now in the custody context. Um, there are so, 30 states or so. <laughs> okay. 30 states or so have said rapist don't get custodial rights, but they have to be convicted of rape. The majority of rapes occur in intimate relationships that are ongoing, in which um, it, it, there is a, a striking study on how many pregnancies are caused by a violent act, even in the context of an otherwise nonviolent relationship. It is a huge factor, especially for poor women. But most statutes that exempt rape and incest require the person be convicted of rape. And if that's true, that excludes the majority of pregnancies caused by involuntary sex from consideration. And when women find out they've been raped and have to carry the child to term, the consequences for the women's mental health cannot be overstated. And the rapist, if not convicted, has custodial rights. Well, thank you all. This is obviously, as Professor Garden said, not the last time we're going to be getting together to talk about this, where we expect a final decision in the Dobbs case to come out in, in June, or observers have started to say possibly early July, because the, the thought is that maybe the court is going to take longer than it usually does to issue some of these blockbuster decisions. Uh, but it'll be soon, and it'll be showing up in the con law classes and family law classes that, that all of you will be teaching next year. So thank you all for being here, and, and thanks to all of our guests. The link to this will be made available if people want to go back and, and, uh, and watch it. Uh, and thank you all very much, uh, all four of our faculty colleagues, for, uh, for joining us today. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law, or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.